0: Part 12 of Batwing by Sax Romer, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Batwing, Chapter 34 The Creeping Sickness. From the ensuing consultation in the library, we did not rise until close upon midnight to the turbid intelligence of inspector aylesbury the fact by this time had penetrated that cullen camber was innocent that he was the victim of a frame-up and that colonel juan menendez had been shot from a window of his own house by a process of lucid reasoning which must have convinced a junior schoolboy Paul Harley, there in the big library, with its garish bookcases and its moorish ornaments, had eliminated every member of the household from the list of suspects. His concluding words, I remember, were as follows. Of the known occupants of Cray's folly on the night of the tragedy, we now find ourselves reduced to four, any one of whom, from the point of view of an impartial critic uninfluenced by personal character, question, or motive, or any consideration other than that of physical possibility, might have shot Colonel Menendez. They are, firstly, myself. In order to believe me guilty, it would be necessary to discount the evidence of Knox, who saw me on the gravel path below at the time the shot was fired from the tower window. Secondly, Knox whose guilt, equally, could only be assumed by means of eliminating my evidence, since I saw him at the window of my room at the time that the shot was fired. Thirdly, Madame de Stammer. Regarding this suspect, in the first place, she could not have gained access to the tower room without assistance, and in the second place, she was so passionately devoted to the late Colonel Menendez that Dr. Rolston is of the opinion that her reason may remain permanently impaired by the shock of his death. Fourthly, and lastly, Miss Val Beverley. Over my own feelings, as he had uttered the girl's name, I must pass in silence. Miss Val Beverley is the only one of the four suspects who was not in a position to establish a sound alibi, so far as I can see at the moment but in this case entire absence of motive renders the suspicion absurd. Having dealt with the known occupants, I shall not touch upon the possibility that some stranger had gained access to the house. This opens up a province of speculation which we must explore at greater leisure, for it would be profitless to attempt such an exploration now. Thus the gathering had broken up. Inspector Aylesbury returning to Market Hilton to make his report and to release Colin Camber and odd song, and Wessex to seek his quarters at the Lavender Arms. I remember that, having seen them off, Harley and I stood in the hall, staring at one another in a very odd way, and so we stood when Val Beverly came quietly from Madame de Stemmer's room and spoke to us. "'Pedro has told me what you have done, Mr. Harley.' she said in a low voice. "'Oh, thank God you have cleared him! But what in Heaven's name does your new discovery mean?' "'You may well ask,' Harley answered grimly. "'If my first task was a hard one, that which remains before me looks more nearly hopeless than anything I have ever been called upon to attempt.' "'It is horrible, it is horrible,' said the girl shudderingly. "'Oh, Mr. Knox,' she turned to me, I have felt all along that there was some stranger in the house. You have told me so." "'Conundrums, conundrums,' muttered Harley irritably. "'Where am I to begin? Upon what am I to erect any feasible theory?' He turned abruptly to Val Beverly. "'Does Madame de Stemmer know?' "'Yes,' she answered, nodding her head, and, hearing the others depart, She asked me to tell you that sleep is impossible until you have personally given her the details of your discovery." "'She wishes to see me?' asked Harley, eagerly. "'She insists upon seeing you,' replied the girl, "'and also requests Mr. Knox to visit her.' She paused, biting her lip. "'Madame's manner is very, very odd. Dr. Rolston cannot understand her at all. I expect he has told you. She has been sitting there for hours and hours, writing." "'Writing!' exclaimed Harley. "'Letters!' "'I don't know what she has been writing,' confessed Val Beverly. "'She declines to tell me, or to show me what she has written. But there is quite a little stack of manuscript upon the table beside her bed. Won't you come in?' I could see that she was more troubled than she cared to confess and I wondered if Dr. Rolston's unpleasant suspicions might have solid foundation, and if the loss of her cousin had affected Madame de Stemmer's brain. Presently then, ushered by Val Beverly, I found myself once more in the violet and silver room in which, on that gray bed of state, Madame reclined amid silken pillows. Her art never deserted her, not even in moments of ultimate stress and that she had prepared herself for this interview was evident enough. I had thought previously that one night of horror had added five years to her apparent age. I thought now that she looked radiantly beautiful. That expression in her eyes, which I knew I must forevermore associate with the memory of the dying tigress, had faded entirely. They remained still, as of old, but to-night they were velvety soft. The lips were relaxed in a smile of tenderness. I observed, with surprise, that she wore much jewelry, and upon her white bosom gleamed the famous rope of pearls which I knew her to treasure above almost anything in her possession. Again the fear touched me coldly that much sorrow had made her mad. But at her very first word of greeting I was immediately reassured. Ah, my friend she said as i entered a caressing note in her deep vibrant voice you have great news they tell me mr harley i was afraid that you had deserted me sir if you had done so i should have been very angry with you set the two armchairs here on my right val dear and sit close beside me then as we seated ourselves you are not smoking my friends she continued and I know that you are both so fond of a smoke." Paul Harley excused himself, but I accepted a cigarette, which Val Beverly offered me from a silver box on the table, and presently— "'I am here like a prisoner of the Bastille,' declared Madame, shrugging her shoulders, "'where only echoes reach me. Now, Mr. Harley, tell me of this wonderful discovery of yours.' Harley inclined his head gravely and in that succinct fashion which he had at command acquainted madame with the result of his two experiments. As he completed the account,—'Ah!' she sighed, and lay back upon her pillows,—'So to-night he is again a free man, ze poor Colin Camber, and his wife is happy once more.' "'Thank God!' I murmured. Her sorrow was pathetic. "'Only ze pure in heart can thank God,' said madame strangely. "'But I, too, am glad. I have written here,' she pointed to a little heap of violet notepaper upon a table placed at the opposite side of the bed, "'how glad I am!' Harley and I stared vaguely across the table. I saw Val Beverly glancing uneasily in the same direction. Save for the writing materials and little heap of manuscript, it held only a cup and saucer, a few sandwiches and a medicine-bottle containing the prescription which Dr. Rolston had made up for the invalid. "'I am curious to know what you have written, madame,' declared Harley. "'Yes, you are curious,' she said. "'Very well, then, I will tell you, and afterward you may read if you wish.' She turned to me. "'You, my friend,' she whispered, and, reaching over, she laid a jeweled hand upon my arm. You have spoken with Isola da Verrera this afternoon, they tell me." "'With Mrs. Camber?' I asked, startled. "'Yes, that is true.' "'Ah, Mrs. Camber,' murmured Madame, "'I knew her as Isola da Verrera. She is beautiful in her golden-doll way. You think so?' Then, ere I had time to reply, "'She told you, I suppose, eh?' "'She told me.' I replied, with a certain embarrassment, that she had met you some years ago in Cuba. Ah, yes, although I told the fat inspector it was not so. How we lie, we women! And, of course, she told you in what relation I stood to Juan Menendez. She did not, Madame de Stammer. No, no. Well, it was nice of her. No matter, I will tell you. I was his mistress. She spoke without bravado, but quite without shame, seeming to glory in the statement. I met him in Paris, she continued, half closing her eyes. I was staying at the house of my sister, and my sister, you understand, was married to one's cousin. That is how we met. I was married, yes, it is true, but in France. Our parents find our husbands, and our lovers find our hearts. Yet, sometimes, these marriages are happy. To me, this good thing had not happened, and in the moment when one's hand touched mine, a living fire entered into my heart, and it has been burning ever since. Burning, burning, always till I die. Very well. I am a shameless woman, yes. But I have lived, and I have loved, and I am content. I went with him to Cuba, and from Cuba to another island where he had estates, and the name of which I shall not pronounce, because it hurts me so, even yet. There he set eyes upon Isola de Valera, the daughter of his manager, and—poof!" She shrugged, and snapped her fingers. "'He was like that, you understand. I knew it well. They did not call him Devil Menendez for nothing. There was a scene, a dreadful scene, and after that another, and yet a third. I have pride. If I had seemed to forget it, still it was there. I left him and went back to France. I tried to forget. I entered upon works of charity for the soldiers at a time when others were becoming tired. I spent a great part of my fortune upon establishing a hospital, and this child she threw her arm around Val Beverly, worked with me day and night. I think I wanted to die. Often I tried to die. Did I not, dear?" "'You did, madame,' said the girl in a very low voice. Twice I was arrested in the French lines, where I had crept dressed like a poilu, for where I shot down many a Prussian. Is it not so?" "'It is true,' answered the girl, nodding her head. "They caught me and arrested me,' said Madame, with a sort of triumph. "'If it had been ze British,' she raised her hand in that Bernhardt gesture, "'with me it would have gone hard. But in France, a woman's smile goes farther than in England. I had had my fun. They called me good comrade. Perhaps I paid with a kiss. What does it matter? But they heard of me, those Prussian dogs. They knew and could not forgive. How often did they come over to bomb us, well, dear? "'Oh, many, many times,' said the girl, shudderingly. And at last they succeeded added Madame bitterly, God, the black villains! Let me not think of it!" She clenched her hands and closed her eyes entirely, but presently resumed again. "'If they had killed me, I should have been glad. But they only made of me a cripple. Monsieur de Stemmer had been killed a few weeks before this. I am sorry I forgot to mention it. I was a widow and when after this catastrophe i could be moved i went to a little villa belonging to my husband at nice to gain strength and this child came with me like a ray of sunshine here to wake the fire in my heart came juan deserted broken wounded in soul but most of all in pride in that evil pride which belongs to his race which is so different from the pride of france but for which all the same I could never hate him. Isola de Valera had run away from his great house in Cuba. Yes, a woman had dared to leave him, the man who had left so many women. To me it was pathetic. I was sorry for him. He had been searching the world for her. He loved this little golden-haired girl as he had never loved me. But to me he came with his broken heart, and I—her voice trembled—I took him back. He still cared for me, you understand? Ah! she laughed, I am not a woman who is lightly forgotten, but the great passion that burned in his Spanish soul was revenge. He was a broken man, not only in mind, but in body. Let me tell you, in that island, which I have not named, there is a horrible disease called by the natives the creeping sickness it is supposed to come from a poisonous place named the black belt and a part of this black belt is near too near to the hacienda in which one sometimes lived paul harley started and glanced at me significantly they think those simple negroes that it is witchcraft voodoo the work of the obia man It is of two kinds, rapid and slow. Those who suffer from the first kind just decline and decline and die in great agony. Others recover, or seem to do so. It is, I suppose, a matter of constitution. Juan had had this sickness and had recovered, or so the doctor said, ah." but—ah—she lay back, shaking her finger characteristically. In one year, in two, three, a swift pain comes, like a needle, you understand? Perhaps in the foot, in the hand, in the arm. It is exquisite, deathly while it lasts, but it only lasts for a few moments. It is agony, and then it goes, leaving nothing to show what had caused it. But, my friends, it is a death warning. If it comes here, she raised one delicate white hand. You may have five years to live. If in the foot, ten or more. But, she sank her voice dramatically, the nearer it is to the heart, the less are the days that remain to you of life. You mean that it recurs? asked Harley. Perhaps in a week, perhaps not for another year, it comes again. That quick agony this time in the shoulder, in the knee. It is a second warning—three times it may come, four times, but at last," she laid her hand upon her breast, "...it comes here, in the heart, and all is finished." She paused, as if exhausted, closing her eyes again, whilst we three who listened looked at one another in an awe-stricken silence, until the vibrant voice resumed. There is only one man in Europe who understands this thing, this creeping sickness. He is a Frenchman who lives in Paris. To him one had been, and he had told him, this clever man, if you are very quiet, and do not exert yourself, and only take as much exercise as is necessary for your general health, you have one year to live." "'My God!' groaned Harley. "'Yes. Such was the verdict, and there is no cure. The poor sufferer must wait and wait, always wait, for that sudden pang, not knowing if it will come in his heart and be the finish. Yes, this living death, then, and revenge were the things ruling Juan's life at the time of which I tell you. He had traced Isola de Valera to England. A chance remark in a London hotel had told him that a Chinaman had been seen in a Surrey village and, of course, had caused much silly chatter. He inquired at once, and he found out that Colin Camber, the man who had taken Isola from him, was living with her at the guest-house here on the hill. How shall I tell you the rest? "'Merciful Heaven!' exclaimed Harley, his glance set upon her, with a sort of horror in his gray eyes. "'I think I can guess—' She turned to him rapidly. "'Monsieur Harley,' she said, "'you are a clever man. I believe you are a genius. And I have the strength to tell you, because I am happy to-night. Because of his great wealth, Juan succeeded in buying Cray's folly from Sir James Appleton to whom it belonged. He told everybody he leased it, but, really, he bought it. He paid him more than twice its value, and so obtained possession. But the plan was not yet complete, although it had taken form in that clever, wicked brain of his. Oh, I could tell you stories of the Menendez, and of the things they have done for love and revenge, which even you, who know much of life, would doubt, I think. Yes, you would not believe. But to continue, shall I tell you upon what terms he had returned to me, eh? I will. Once more he would suffer that pang of death in life, for he had courage—ah, such great courage! And then, when the waiting for the next grew more than even his fearless heart could bear, I, who also had courage, and who loved him, should—she paused—do you understand? Harley nodded dumbly, and suddenly I found Val Beverly's little fingers twined about mine. "'I agreed,' continued the deep voice, "'it was a boon which I too would have asked from one who loved me. But to die, knowing another cherished the woman who had been torn from him, was an impossibility for Juan Menendez. What he had schemed to do at first I never knew. But presently—' Because of our situation here, and because of that which he had asked of me, it came the great plan on the night he told me a night I shall never forget. I drew back in horror from him I Marie d'Estamer, who thought I knew the blackest that was in him. I shrank, and because of that scene, it came to him again in the early morning, the moment of agony. The needle pain here, low down in his left breast. He pleaded with me to do the wicked thing that he had planned, and because I dared not refuse, knowing he might die at my feet, I consented. But, my friends, I had my own plan too, of which he knew nothing. On the next day, he went to Paris and was told he had two months to live with great such great care but perhaps only a week a day if he should permit his hot passions to inflame that threatened heart very well i said yes yes to all that he suggested and he began to lay the trail the trail to lead to his enemy it was his hobby this vengeance he was like a big cruel boy It was he himself, Juan Menendez, who broke into Cray's folly. It was he who nailed the batwing to the door. It was he who brought two rifles of a kind of which so many millions were made during the war, that anybody might possess one. And it was he who concealed the first of these, one cartridge discharged, under the floor of the hut in the garden of the West House. The other, which was to be used. He placed—'In the shutter case of one of the tower rooms,' continued Paul Harley. "'I know. I found it there to-night.' "'What?' I asked. "'You found it, Harley?' "'I returned to look for it,' he said. "'At the present moment it is upstairs in my room.' "'Ah, Monsieur Harley!' exclaimed Madame, smiling at him radiantly. "'I love your genius.' "'Then it was,' she continued that he thought himself ready, ready for revenge, and ready for death. He summoned you, Monsieur Holly, to be an expert witness. He placed with you evidence which could not fail to lead to the arrest of Monsieur Cambert. Very well. I allowed him to do all this. His courage, mon dieu, how I worshipped his courage! At night, when every one slept, and he could not drop the mask, I have seen what he suffered. I have begged him, begged him upon my knees, to allow me to end it then and there, to forget this dream of revenge, to die without this last stain upon his soul. But he, expecting at any hour, at any minute, to know again the agony which cannot be described, which is unlike any other suffered by the flesh, refused, refused, and I, She raised her eyes ecstatically. I have worshipped this courage of his, although it was evil, bad. The full moon gives the best light, and so he planned it for the night of the full moon. But on the night before, because of some scene which he had with you, Monsieur Harley, nearly I thought his plans would come to nothing. Nearly, I thought the last act of love which he asked of me would never be performed. He sat there, up in that little room which he liked best, the coldness upon him which always came before the pang, waiting, waiting, a deathly dew on his forehead for the end. And I, I who loved him better than life, watched him. And so fate willed it, the pang never came. You watched him? I whispered. Harley turned to me slowly. Don't you understand, Knox? he said in a voice curiously unlike his own. Ah, my friend, Madame de Stemmer laid her hand upon my arm with that caressing gesture which I knew. You do understand, don't you? The power to use my limbs returned to me during the last week that I lived in Nice. She bent forward, and raised her face, in an almost agonized appeal to Val Beverly. "'My dear, my dear,' she said, "'forgive me, forgive me! But I loved him so. One day, I think,' her glance sought my face, "'you will know. Then you will forgive me.'" "'Oh, madame, madame!' whispered the girl, and began to sob silently. Easy enough?' Asked Madame de Stemmer, raising her hand and looking defiantly at Paul Harley. Last night, you, Monsieur Harley, who have genius, nearly brought it all to nothing. You passed the door in the shrubbery just when one was preparing to go out. I was watching from the window above. Then, when you had gone, he came out, smoking his last cigarette. I went to my place, entering the tower room by the door from that corridor. I opened the window. It had been carefully oiled. It was soundless. I was cold as one already dead. But love made me strong. I had seen him suffer. I took the rifle from its hiding place, the heavy rifle which so few women could use. It was no heavier than some which I had used before, and to good purpose. Again she paused, and I saw her lips trembling. Before my mind's eye the picture arose which I had seen from Harley's window, the picture of Colonel Juan Menendez walking in the moonlight along the path to the sundial, with halting steps, with clenched fists, but upright as a soldier on parade. Walking on, dauntlessly, to his execution. Out of a sort of haze, which seemed to obscure both sight and hearing, I'd heard madame speaking again. He turned his head toward me, he threw a kiss, and I fired. Did you think a woman lived who could perform such a deed, eh? If you did not think so, it is because you have never looked into the eyes of one who loved her with her body, her mind, and with her soul. I think, yes, I think I went mad. The rifle, I remember, I replaced, but I remember no more, ah!" She sighed in a resigned, weary way, untwined her arm from about Val Beverly, and falling back upon her pillows. "'It is all written here,' she said, every word of it, my friends, and signed at the bottom. I am a murderess, and it was a merciful deed. You see, I had a plan of which one knew nothing. This was my plan." She pointed to the heap of manuscript. "'I would give him relief from his agonies, yes, for although he was an evil man, I loved him better than life. I would let him die happy, thinking his revenge complete. But others to suffer? No, no, a thousand times no. Ah! I am so tired. She took up the little medicine-bottle, poured its contents into the glass, and emptied it at a draught. Paul Harley, as though galvanized, sprang to his feet. "'My God!' he cried huskily. "'Stop her! Stop her!' Val Beverly, now desperately white, clutched at me with quivering fingers, her agonized glance set upon the smiling face of Madame de Stemmer. "'No fuss, dear friends!' said madame, gently, no trouble, no nasty stomach-pumps, for it is useless. I shall just fall asleep in a few moments now, and when I wake, Juan will be with me." Her face was radiant. It became lighted up magically. I knew in that grim hour what a beautiful woman madame de Stemmer must have been. She rested her hand upon Val Beverly's head and looked at me with her strange, still eyes. Be good to her, my friend, she whispered. She is English, but not cold like some. She too can love. She closed her eyes and dropped back upon her pillows for the last time. Chapter 35 An Afterward This shall be a brief afterward, for I have little else to say. As Madame had predicted, all antidotes and restoratives were of no avail. She had taken enough of some drug which she had evidently had in her possession for this very purpose, to ensure that there should be no awakening, and although Dr. Rolston was on the spot within half an hour, Madame de Stemmer was already past human aid. There are, perhaps, one or two details which may be of interest. For instance, As a result of the post-mortem examination of Colonel Menendez, no trace of disease was discovered in any of the organs, but, from information supplied by his solicitors, Harley succeeded in tracing the Paris specialist to whom Madame de Stemmer had referred, and he confirmed her statement in every particular. The disease, to which he gave some name which I have forgotten, was untraceable, he declared, by any means thus far known to science. As we had anticipated, the bulk of Colonel Don Juan's wealth he had bequeathed to Madame de Stemmer, and she in turn had provided that all of which she might die possessed should be divided between certain charities and Val Beverly. I thus found myself at the time when all these legal processes terminated engaged to marry a girl as wealthy as she was beautiful. Therefore, except for the many grim memories which it had left with me, Nothing but personal good fortune resulted from my sojourn at Cray's Folly, beneath the shadow of that Batwing, which had had no existence outside the cunning imagination of Colonel Juan Menendez. The End of Batwing by Sax Romer